Rosemary, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Oh, excellent. And you sound great. What was I just saying right before I hooked you in? I said something about Preston and... Oh, uh, you've never been on this show before. You don't know exactly what I do. Um, it's done completely by myself. I don't have any sponsors. I don't have any anybody. I don't want to have to answer to anyone. Um, That's nice. Yeah, except possibly some of the listeners when they say something that I take to heart. But... Mm-hmm. Yeah, other I, I don't have a schedule really. I don't have. I'll just put stuff up almost when I feel like it. Usually on Sunday nights I'll do something, but not always. And that's how I prefer to do it. Did you um, switch over to another network? Do you still have a show? You must, don't you? I don't. I put. Uh, I left KGRA for a variety of reasons, and um, I just put the show into hiatus while I figured out what I wanted to do. I wasn't sure that I wanted to go to another network. And uh, so I started looking at podcasting, but I haven't done anything yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah well, so Strange Dimensions is off the air at the moment. Okay. Yeah, well, uh, if you do need help with it, I've actually helped some other people when they said they wanted to go totally independent, which also means, you know, you don't have any technical support or anything. You have to do everything yourself, which is totally fine with me because when it comes to doing this show, I'm a total control freak. I want. I've had people say, "Can I be on your show?" And I say, "Um, no." <laughs> well, I'm very honored. Well, the, the, it, that's not the point. The point is that um, people ask me. I say, "I do the show for an extremely personal reason. I really want to talk to some people. I really want to have them on the show, and it gives me a chance. Like when I did the magazine, it gives me an excuse to talk to people I want to talk to." Not because it's like I'm going to interview everybody that you know. I, I interviewed Stanton Friedman for the first time ever. Um, during the UFO conference, and we just went in a room somewhere. It's like, I got to get Stan recorded at least once, just for the hell of it. And I kept trying to steer him away from UFOs, and he would always steer us right back to it. <laughs> I can't imagine him talking about anything else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was trying to talk about his background and his growing up and um, his education and working on the nuclear rocket program. And um, we did get to all that, but he kept like, it's like, well, that reminds me of the uh, the case that I invested. It's like, Stan, no, I want to talk about other stuff. Everybody ask about the UFO stuff. I want to ask you about something else. You've never, you don't even know what my intros are, so I'll just do the anti-ETH one because that's my favorite. Um, okay. Yeah, I'll turn it up here so you can hear it. See if you can recognize some of the people in the uh, beginning here. The whole extraterrestrial thing is not uh, not a viable solution to this. We, we need to go f- through a turning point in the study of, of this whole domain, away from ideology. We're not here to prove that we're being visited by you know, aliens from this planet or that star. That may very well be true, but we have not done the basic work. I have this hunch that the um, that this that this phenomenon is um, comes from, comes from some sort of domain of pure information, and the fact that it can interact with us at all suggests that uh, that we inhabit a domain that's also pure information. Are we uh, well conditioned here? Yes.
Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend, future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are giving you all the evidence based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend, can your heart stand the shocking facts about Radio Mysterioso. So, did you recognize anybody in that opening there? Well, some of those voices sounded very familiar, but uh, I would hesitate to try and put names on them because uh, I, I just don't hear them that often. Right. You don't really... You read people's stuff, but you don't hear them. I think... Um, let's see... Uh, uh, John Keel, Jacques Vallée, um, Mac Tonys, and William S. Burroughs. Uh, Vallée I got, and I thought that was Keel, but I wasn't certain. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, nice collection. Yeah, I never got to interview John Keel, but my friend Ken Thomas did, and so he let me post uh, an interview he'd done with him, oh, sometime in the 90s, I think. So that's up on the Writing Mysterioso site. However, today, right now, happy... Um, uh, honored to have uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley on the show with us today. Uh, we've been planning this for a while. I think I was on your KGRA show once. I can't even remember what we talked about. I hope it. I hope it wasn't Project Beta because everybody talks you about. You hope what? I hope it wasn't about Project Beta because every t- every time I'm on a show, people want to talk about that. And I think you. I think you're probably well familiar with books. Really, people want to talk about, and you're sick of talking about them. I hope I don't make that mistake. Well, I um, I know I mentioned Project Beta, um, but uh, we talked about, um, you know, your newer work, uh, which is more relevant anyway right now. I'm Not that Project Beta isn't. It's a great book, but, you know, it has been out a while. Yeah, like tw- 12 years. How long have you been writing? You've got, what, over 50 books? Uh, I'm uh, right about 65 or 66 now, and... Uh, you know, the, I think I came out of the womb writing. I mean, I've been writing my whole life. I think I had a manuscript halfway done by the time I poked my head out. <laughs> and it's been that way my whole life. Uh, and uh, even when I was a little kid, as soon as, soon as I uh, learned how to, to print and to write, uh, I was in grade school when I taught myself how to type on an old family typewriter. And it's been a steady stream ever since. I love to write. And uh, I've done a lot of different kinds of writing over the years. I've done fiction and nonfiction um, on a variety of topics. But my real love is the unknown. And that includes the paranormal, UFOs, cryptids, um, mysticism, body, mind, spirit topics. Mm -hmm. Um, I've spent really my whole life being fascinated by the unknown. Do you even know why? Thank you for doing your introduction for me. That was wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Uh, do you know why? Because people ask me that too. How long have you been here? How did you get interested? Well, you know, why? Is it just something that was always in you? Yeah, the seeds probably were there, but um, the spark for me happened when I was six years old, and um, I got um, a little telescope, a little handheld kind of periscope telescope. Ah, yeah. Um, it was an offer on the back of a Kix cereal box. <laughs> if you said I'm dating myself here, but if you sent in, you know, X number of box tops and, you know, uh, 50 cents or a dollar, you know, you got this little periscope, a kind of um, uh, telescope. And so I got it and I went outside uh, one night and the first thing I looked at was the moon. And this was some crummy little cheap thing but it magnified the moon and i was so awestruck by mm -hmm. uh this magnified moon that i was i was hooked on the sky from then on the sky and and the wonders of the sky and in fact um i wanted to be an astronomer and mm. so i gobbled up uh, books and information i was a voracious reader from a kid um, about astronomy and science fiction and the space race and all that stuff um, and uh, that, that was my intent, to be an astronomer. But mixed in with that was the science fiction end of it and aliens and life out there. But um, I had this head-on collision with mathematics. <laughs> and uh, by the time I was in um, a junior high school and on into high school, I realized that um, there was not going to be a Ph.D. in math or physics in my future, and I should do something else. <laughs> yeah, I, I think a lot of people that are, are writer types are not mathematics types. I couldn't stand math. I, I, I never could. It still, in a lot of ways, mystifies me, except for you know things that you have to use it for. But other than that, I, I don't really pay any attention to it, um, except to do your taxes and figure out uh, tips. And um, also some of my flying stuff, you had to do navigation and figure out how much fuel you're using and stuff like that. I skipped over a very important uh, thing I wanted to ask you. How can you possibly enjoy writing? You're the second person I think ever that I know that's a writer that enjoys it. <laughs> <laughs> you, have you noticed that? Uh, well, it is quite unusual because most writers I know, even if they like writing, it's often a struggle for them. And knock on wood, I'm going to knock on wood right now. Okay. Um, that um, I it's it's never been a struggle for me. I, you know, I've had times where you know I've had a little difficulty getting something to gel. Right. But it's like water running through me all the time. It's uh, the creativity is always there. The I sit down at the keyboard and things start to flow. And um, this isn't a boast, but uh, I discovered over the course of time as I went through school and I, I went through writing classes and I studied journalism and everything that um, I had the ability to do first draft finished product and um, I do revise I do tinker I do polish I uh, but uh, for the most part what you see in my books is the way it fell into my head the first time mm. and um, I found that if I tried to rewrite too much things would start to fall apart. So that's enabled me to be very productive and prolific. Yeah. Um, the, uh, uh, go ahead. Isaac Asimov, you know, uh, what did he do, like 300 and some books over the course of his life. But um, 
it, it uh, keeps my productivity very high. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I love the process. Uh, there's something about, um, uh, you know, I feel things coming into my head and I sit down at the keyboard and it, it just all comes out. When I was 15 years old, I'll share another early story with you, Greg. Please. I was a sophomore in high school, and uh, we got an assignment one day to write a little short essay about something that was important to us. And at that point, even though I was not doing well in math and physics, I still harbored this ambition that I was going to be an astronomer. And so I went home and I wrote a little essay, a one-page essay, on uh, astronomy and how I discovered astronomy and why I wanted to be an astronomer. So we turned our papers in, and the next uh, then the teacher passes them all back. They're all graded. I got an A plus, uh-huh. and he he said I he said I want to give all of you uh, one essay, and he went on to say that one person in the class, and he'd taken my name off the essay, uh, had written the perfect essay. And it had a beginning, a middle, and an end. Uh, every paragraph was linked uh, to the preceding paragraph. Mm-hmm. Um, all the grammar was all correct, uh, and he wanted to show it as an illustration of structure. And of course, everybody knew in the class who wrote it because they all knew I was the astronomy freak. Yeah, um, and I died of embarrassment. <laughs> but um, I. It, it, at that point, uh, I did not know that I had any unusual ability to write because everybody writes in school. You know, yeah. you've got to write papers and mm-hmm. things like that. And it didn't occur to me that I had an unusual ability to write until I was 15. And uh, that's played out over the course of my life. And uh, I feel very... Uh, I guess, honored or privileged to to have that gift. And uh, I've devoted my career to exploring the unknown because um, I I think it's important for people to have good information uh, about these topics uh, in order to to help understand their own experiences. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's that's really what drives me, is putting together books and information that will help people put their own experiences into a meaningful context. Right, because um, actually, funny you bring that up, a a very recent uh, trend on this show, I've been talking to everybody about the prominence of the witness, how researchers are more interested, or they should be, and it's it's, uh, making the rounds now that the witness should be primary and not what you think they should be thinking or what you're going to put in your book about that person. Because most people that read this stuff, and you, of course, you've you've mentioned it, they they kind of want to know what happened to them, or you know, if they're just alone or they're weird or whatever. And I'm sure this happens to you. I'm I know it does. Do people come up to you when you're you know signing books or at a convention or whatever? Do they just start spilling over the side to you about stuff that's happened to them? Yes, uh, and and people know that that I collect experiences, and I have a lot of them in in uh, most of my books, and they do want to share their experiences because they feel that I will take them seriously. I will listen. Mm-hmm. I'm not gonna write them off as a nutcase, and uh, so I give people their due. And yes, I do hear some things that I think are a bit over the top, <laughs> um, but um, uh, on on the other hand. Over the course of 
of all these years of doing this research, my own boggle point has gotten pushed out further and further <laughs> and able to take on board as something that, well, hey, we can't say it didn't happen. Maybe it did. Yeah, it's exactly. It's um well, I don't know. I I I think I talked to Preston about this. You you co-wrote a book with Preston Dennett. I just talked to him 3 days ago. And I was saying, you know, what do you hmm how do you how do you know and when you get to the point where you know somebody's just messing with you or trying to get attention or whatever, what is the what is your compass for something that seems um, fairly, what's the word, real? Or the, the, the person is telling you exactly as they experience something. How, how do you know that? And how do you know that quickly? It, it's difficult. It's an inexact art, I would say. Um, I do have cases where I say, um, I'm, and I'm going to be very frank about it, when my bullshit meter hits the red zone. Uh, and sometimes it's an intuitive thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that Having interviewed so many people, probably in the thousands by now, because I've been doing this full time since 1983, Hmm. uh, that um, there are certain patterns that show up in in experiencer uh, events, whether it's paranormal or cryptid or mystical and spiritual or UFO. There are constellations of patterns and sub-patterns. And if something misses too many of those target points in the patterns, then um, then I'm very dubious about it. Yeah, and there's no way to... You've developed that over years and years and years. So it's it's not something where you can say, if you hear this, then that means that it's just... It's a sense that you get after talking to these thousands of people, I'm sure. Most people that come up to me, they just want to tell me... The very strange thing, I mentioned this before, a lot of people will come up to me and they will tell me what happened to them and then they say thank you and they leave. They don't want an explanation. They don't want me to talk with them about it. They just wanted to say something to somebody that wasn't going to look at them funny, laugh at them or whatever, to sort of validate the experience um, by just, just speaking about it. Sometimes they just want to unload. And um, I've been told uh, many times over the years that I'm a very good listener. And uh, I do I do. T- Chris listen O'Brien to- said that, actually. Uh, that's right, he did, and he he uh, he told me that as well. But I've had a number of people say that to me, and they have the feeling when they're talking to me that um, I'm paying attention. Uh, I'm not trying to analyze or judge, uh, and that's important to people, especially when you get into these areas of extraordinary experience, and as. Um, I've pointed out in so many of my books, including the new one, The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness, uh, all of these people run a very high risk of being ridiculed and denounced, not only by the public and the media and so-called experts, but by their own friends and family. Mm -hmm. And and when they find a sympathetic ear, uh, somebody who is at least going to listen to them uh it it takes a tremendous weight off people right yeah because it it, they they walk around with this and they they're at a certain point they're not sure if they're going nuts or not because they haven't been able to integrate it by because it's just bottled up there's no there's no feedback there's no i don't know validation 
um, at least even on a level of yes, you you know, I believe you saw what you saw, even though I wasn't there. Is that something that you is that something you try to convey to people? Um, well, uh, when I uh, interview people about their experiences, or at least listen, um, I will offer feedback in terms of um, context. You know, that and I think for a lot of people, it's important for them to know that they're not alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they've read other experiences; they sort of intellectually know that. But to get direct feedback from someone who is, uh, uh, you know, in in the community or a researcher who's had a lot of contact with experiencers, and and I've had plenty of experiences myself. Um, I was going to ask. Then uh, um, it it puts people into a different comfort zone. Yeah. Here's a weird question I wrote down. I don't know. I must have been channeling it. I'll read it verbatim. What is the best way to approach a witness to strange events or phenomena? Does it change with the phenomenon under examination, area of the country, foreign countries, economic status, education level? Um, do, do you find a difference with all these things depending on the source? Um. I get contacted by people by email. You know, they come up in person, as as you mentioned, at events. Um, and um, I find that straight across the board, uh, no matter what um, economic strata, education, or, or whatever, um, I mean, yes, people have different ways of expressing themselves, and some better and some not. Right. But there's a frankness and an honesty. Mm-hmm. And um, that's pretty consistent. Um, I rarely try to pry things out of people. Um, I mean, sometimes I hear about individuals uh, and I will um, make the effort to initiate a contact and ask them if I could interview them. And um, sometimes people are more guarded that way. Yeah. Uh, but when when they come to somebody like me, uh, they're ready to talk. Right. And um, they are brutally honest um, and will reveal uh, a lot of personal details about themselves. I would say one thing I have noticed, um, I've spent um, a lot of time in England over the years uh, doing events and lecturing and whatnot and research over there. And uh, there, there is a big difference between English and American um, accounts. Uh, there's, there are definite, they are definitely a lot more reserved in England, uh, whereas um, Americans, uh, we open up very easily. Yeah. And you put us in a social situation, we can be instant best friends, instant buddies. We'll tell our personal lives to people we haven't known very long. <laughs> yeah. And uh, in other countries, uh, there are social barriers that uh, need to be crossed first before you get to that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I will ask you one more uh, question about this before I annoy you to to the point of distraction. (laughs) But (laughs) um, have you ever uh, done uh, interviewed a witness over a period of time and noticed that um, that their level of comfort and more things come out? My my question is. If you develop some kind of a personal relationship uh, with a, uh, to some extent, with a witness, do you get a different story, or do people pretty much spill over the side right away, as you just said? 
Uh, I have had uh, cases where uh, I've followed cases or individuals for a long period of time because their story continually updates, you know, with new experiences. Mm-hmm. And um, rarely have, have I encountered people whose stories start to deviate too much. Um, when people tell their stories and they retell their stories, um, there are always some differences. Uh, people decide to uh, talk about something that maybe they held back or mm-hmm. um, certainly there are tendencies to embellish some things for uh, some individuals and audiences. But for the most part, things are very consistent uh, and the storylines don't waver. Right. Uh, so um, that that has been a feature of of long term cases as well, and uh, some of the paranormal ones that I've done, um, what I call persistent negative hauntings, um, those are unfolding cases where um, the deeper you go into the case, uh, sometimes the more dramatic the phenomena become. Uh, and it's if you're dealing with some sort of um, hostile, intelligent entity that's lurking about, you know, anchored to a piece of land or a structure or something like that, um, the more familiar they get with your energy field, uh, the more they can act out. And so that's a different kind of scenario. Mm. And witnesses then experience um, changing uh, in the phenomena as well. Okay, yeah. See, because I'm coming from one, the UFO thing. I have not done any investigation really much with UFOs, at least, you know, not in a few years. And two, I've never done paranormal cryptozoology, um, any kind of Bigfoot, any kind of those investigations and I'm coming from that point point of view, which where something basically happens once a lot of the time, and two, it's from a male point of view, which is a little you, you're talking to a witness a little bit differently, and I think people had based on one the fact that you're a woman, and two the fact that the, how you talk to people, I think the issue that I was trying to bring up about it, witness trust and all that is probably a, a lot different for you than it is, or at least a little bit different from you. Uh, for you then say, oh, geez, I don't know. Like if Stan Gordon walked in and started talking to somebody, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I think that's a good point, Greg. Um, I think women are um, automatically seen as more sympathetic, um, maybe easier to talk to. We're not going to be qu- as judgmental, perhaps, as a man might be. So um, th- there might be something to that. Yeah, I'm not a knock on Stan Gordon at all. It's just the first name that came to mind. Yeah. Stan's great. He's a friend of mine. <laughs> uh-huh, I bet. I've noticed there were two books on West Virginia, I think. Are you from West Virginia? I'm not. I did two books. I did Monsters of West Virginia and, and the big book of uh, Ghosts and Hauntings in West Virginia. And uh, those came about because um, I had done a book for Stackpole, uh, which got out of the paranormal, unfortunately. And they started up a state-by-state series. And um, I was spending a lot of time in West Virginia. I was uh, doing a lot of Mothman-related investigations, encrypted stuff. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was making frequent trips down there to the state and so I volunteered myself as uh, someone who could do West Virginia because they didn't have anybody that um, they uh, they thought Local. they could pay for that yeah uh, so that's how those two books came about uh-huh 
I live in Connecticut, so it's a it's a long haul down to West Virginia. Oh, okay. Yeah, I drove to Clarksburg to the Gray Barker Library from um, Baltimore once, and it took forever. Yes, yes. I used to live in the Baltimore area, uh, and that's what made it. Um, you know, a few hours closer for me uh, for for going to West Virginia. Mm. And by the way, that Gray Barker Library, I've spent a lot of time there. It's a fabulous collection. Yeah, who run, is that? The same librarian? Is his name D- David something? Uh, I can't recall his last name, but yes, David, the curator there. Yeah, we got there. Um, I went there with Skyler actually. Um, we got there about ten minutes before they closed. And he he just he locked the door and said, "Well, we're you know we're going to close now, but you spend as much time as you want." And he came in the room with us, and he was explaining things and showing us things. Really nice guy. He really cares about the collection, mm-hmm. and uh, yes, I did uh, quite a bit of research there. Wish it wasn't in Clarksburg; that it was a little more accessible. Well, I guess that's. I don't know if. Uh, uh, Gray Barker wanted it there, or it just ended up there, or they just they hold it dear because he's you know he's a local boy. So I guess it's right. just going to stay there. Um, you know, it's uh, yeah, it is it is kind of out of the way. I, I wish it could be somewhere else. What did you go there to? Was it research for um, one of those West Virginia books? Uh, yes, and uh, and other I stuff. Was, I was doing a lot of Mothman research and uh, Men in Black. Um, so I went through, um, you know, the letters, uh, there was quite a bit of Keel material there too. A lot of letters from Keel, hmm. uh, and, um, the, uh, Woody Derenberger, um, uh, case, you know, the visitor from Lanelos, yeah. uh, the Indrid Cole uh, mm-hmm. scenario. Um, I had intended to. Um, kind of update the whole Mothman situation. And I spent, um, it was a long-term project, and I didn't have any, uh, like, finite deadline for myself on it, but I wanted to uh, kind of update Mothman. And um, that whole situation now, this past year or so, has changed a lot with the um, Chicago Flying Humanoids case, which has become so controversial yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, you've got people weighing in right and left on uh, what really has gone on and whether or not it relates to Mothman. And now there's flying humanoids all over the place. And so um, I just set it aside. <laughs> what do you think's going on over there? I've, I've seen a, I had Lon Stickler on. I don't know, about four or five months ago. We talked about a little bit, and then within about two or three months, I noticed there was uh, dissension in the ranks and people saying that they had gone to to Chicago and talked to some of these people, and some of them had never described it the way that it was reported, and... It's a uh, it's a big tangled knot. It's like it's uh, almost like the uh, Kennedy assassination uh, community, where nobody can gr- or ufology, where nobody can agree on anything. Uh, it is, and uh, when it all started in uh, 2017, and I uh, I've been a friend of Lawn's for a number of years, and um, I joined the um, the Phantom Task Force, uh, as, as it's known, which is a private discussion list where the researchers are all sharing their notes uh-huh. unfortunately I could not make it to Chicago I really wanted to get to Chicago to um, uh, to visit the actual sites and um, 
you know, check things out and a field uh, trip. And because of my schedule being so booked up, I didn't make it in 2017. And then by the time uh, all the, the, the book came out um, and the controversy started to happen, um, it's, it's been, I would say, troubling. Um, hmm. I, uh, I have not inter- interviewed any of the witnesses myself. I did have uh, the contact information for quite a few witnesses, but I uh, did not interview any, any of them. Um, I did make a contribution to Lon's book, which was more of an overview uh, rather than addressing the data specifically. I was like, well, how does something like this happen and how might we compare it to, um, to other situations? And I did talk about Mothman. So it's, um, it's hard for me, for me, and I really can't comment on the validity of some of these uh, criticisms. Um, at the very least, I think that um, they, they bear further investigation. Uh, I mean, uh, you know, was, uh, were there reports that were hoaxed and were they not vetted uh, well enough? Uh, and as, as a side here, Greg, you know, this, this is where we're all vulnerable in this field because right. um, no matter, I mean, even if you think somebody's on the level and you do the best to vet their story, um, hoaxes do get through. Yeah. And it happens to all of us. Uh, so, um, unfortunately, what then developed was then just a lot of mudslinging, where yeah. people were, were going online and going on shows, tearing each other down. And um, I thought that was a, a, a sad development. It just made everybody defensive, yeah. no matter what side you were on. Everybody it confused was- me, because I couldn't tell what was going on anymore because of all the fighting. Exactly. And uh, so um, I know that uh, um, Lon and his key people, they're still collecting reports. And uh, as you know, if you subscribe to Phantoms and Monsters, um, he, he publishes them. Yeah, know, I, I see them come across the feed all the time. Yeah. But um, is there something that we'll never get to the bottom of? Um and then, you know, Lauren Coleman came out with his book on, uh, you know, emphasizing the evil entity end of it uh, for Mothman. And, and uh, he got into the fray and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just been. Uh, uh, All my friends and heroes are fighting with each other. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's, just, it's, it's just one big slugfest. Yeah. Uh, and we haven't seen the likes of anything like that in in a long time. No, no. You get the feeling that p- perhaps the phenomenon itself is is turning people against each other after a while. Well, you know, this this would be the first thing that Keel would say. Yeah, uh, it would be like, well, what do you expect? This is this is what Trickster does. And as soon as you get into these topics, and if you think you're making any headway, uh, everything's going to get turned upside down on you. Yeah, Keel said that. I think uh, Jeff Ritzman was on with me a couple of times, and he mentioned that um, in regards to talking with George Hansen and saying that he, he finds that any paranormal group, almost any, practically all of them, he said that eventually they're going to end up, they're just going to end up in, in chaos 
Um, and that's just the way it works. Anytime you're dealing with something paranormal and you've got, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 people together to work to, to try and work on it, it just eventually it's going to fall apart. And it's going to fall apart in, in ways that are, they don't just fade away. People start fighting and, and, you know, getting jealous and sleeping with each other and all kinds of weird things. And um, it's, he said it's just, that just seems to be the way it is, and the tricksterous nature of, nature of the phenomenon um, seems to affect people that way. It, it's true, and it's very peculiar. I have seen that happen to so many groups um, within different fields, you know, yeah. and, and within the whole spectrum of topics that I cover from the paranormal into the metaphysical, uh, it happens all the time. And people are always saying, uh, oh, can't we all get along? Let's share and, you know, let's uh, all try to help each other. And that goes by the boards almost as soon as it's out of somebody's mouth. <laughs> yeah. I, I think I've never really experienced that because I have a really hard time with joining any group. Groups just, they, they bother me. Um, I don't mind networking with people, but a group just... I can't. And maybe there's something, you know, deep down that it just makes me think that it's it, protecting myself against that kind of thing. I don't want to get in big fights with people about anything. I'd rather be learning than fighting. So, um, and people like to do things together. It's human nature. And this thing goes against that kind of nature, it seems. Well, and, and these things then, they wind up sucking up an awful lot of energy. That too. And uh, so I, I tend to be a non-joiner too. I've um, definitely allied myself with certain groups over the years that I've enjoyed working with, um, especially in, in the area of paranormal investigating. And uh, that's something that uh, I'm very particular about because... Um, uh, people have many different styles of investigation and also levels of, of expertise. And there are an awful lot of people out there just sort of imitating the reality shows. Right. Uh, but by and large, I'm not a joiner either. I've been on the boards of um, a number of organizations, and um, that also uh, gets to be very time-consuming. And then you get caught up in internal politics and hmm. – uh, yep. As a writer and a researcher, uh, I'd, I'd rather be spending most of my time uh, pursuing something that I feel is going to be productive. Yeah, exactly. And it, the only way to do, you know, the, he, he or she who travels alone travels fastest. So I think that's just, I, I, and people say, you know, do you, are you adverse, adverse to all this, you know, fighting and any, any kind of like, well, I kind of am, but I'm mostly adverse to having my, my individual interests hijacked by a group. Yes. And so, well, back to the reason I do the show. I mean, I just, I do it for a very personal reason and it's basically for learning and talking to people like you and getting some insight and some perspective. I went through your list of books. I've only, I've only read a couple of them. I did read a great deal of the new one and we were talking about the, the prominence of the witness, and that's basically what this book is. It lets the witnesses speak for themselves, truly speak for themselves, which is why um, I was honored when you asked me to write a uh, blurb for it. And that's really what struck me about it, was that the, the witness was taking center stage, finally. Uh, yes, I th and uh, I think it's, it's important. Uh, and uh, as... Uh, you know, Peter Robbins, who also did a wonderful testimonial for us, as, as you did, 
um, pointed out uh, much the same thing. And Michael Bryan, who's uh, my co-author, who's been in ufology a long time, uh, who has always had an interest in in first-person experience, uh, this is important testimony that gets um, pushed to the back corner, uh, especially in ufology, all the time by Mm. uh, researchers who are looking for the nuts and bolts, the hard evidence, they want to be um, scientific scientific, or uh, they want everybody to know they've got secret government sources and, you know, they're <laughs> watching out the latest news. Uh, and so the field has been so focused on that. I mean, just look how long it took for uh, abductions to get. Um, more or less accepted in the field. That was a stepchild for so long. Yeah. Nobody wanted to talk about abductions and missing time and, th- and uh, some of the things that David Jacobs and Bud Hopkins brought to the forefront. Uh, and John Mack, of course. Uh, and it's still a, a, a stepchild. And, uh, and yet the first person eyewitness experience is some of the best evidence we have for the alien presence on Earth. And there are patterns in these experiences, definite patterns uh, in terms of what people see and the circumstances under uh, uh, which they have the experience. And uh, these sorts of things need more attention. Um, The testimonies in the book... uh, the Road to Strange, it's our second in, in a series that we're doing called The Road to Strange. The first one had to do with the paranormal. Um, the stories are very frank about what happened yeah, and very how much so. were affected uh, and whether or not their lives were affected for better or for worse. Very frank. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was actually fascinated to read the account, what was it, by the guy that went to investigate in New Zealand after Valentinich disappeared and what they saw and how, how dramatic that was. You don't ever hear about that. All you hear about is Frederick Valentinich uh, called in and he was in his plane and then they didn't hear from him anymore and nobody could ever find the plane. You don't hear about anybody else. And the, the, this was, and these are completely different sightings. The day, I think the, night, the next night or the night after that. It was soon after that, and uh, David Crockett, who uh, who wrote that piece um, about the New Zealand uh, lights, uh, he was part of a film crew that was sent up in an airplane to recreate uh, a UFO sighting uh, for a documentary. And in the process of that, they had their own sighting, their own legitimate sighting, which he captured uh, on film, mm-hmm. um, an object with pulsating rings around it. And so the authorities immediately dismissed that. And the, the argument, you know, this, you know, it's like swamp gas territory. Uh, <laughs> one, one, one of the explanations that was officially given was that they saw the reflected lights of squid boats on clouds. Yeah. And I thought, how do you go there to these ludicrous explanations because you don't want to acknowledge that something that can't be explained is in our skies? Yeah, and that's been going on for a long time. Um, 
The funny thing is that I've noticed recently, whatever you think about the the Pentagon thing and the, the Tom DeLonge, I'm doing my best to ignore it. However, I do notice uh, that there's less of a reluctance in media, academia, and even in science to deal with some of this. And it's quiet, to be sure, but it's, I think there's a groundswell of it. And if there's anything positive to come about out of whatever's going on with the with that group um the main thing is the opening up of uh minds of people who never really would have admitted this before really strange and good i guess there there is a shift and i know that people have been uh clamoring for disclosure for a long time and i don't think we're going to get any like big announcement sort of disclosure but there there has been a shift and I think that there is a a planned disclosure. Um, it's carefully orchestrated. It has a timed rollout to it. And things are being placed in the media and through uh, prominent uh, people in the field to release this information and public reaction to it is being very carefully monitored. And I believe that the purpose of this is to condition people on a more intense and a higher level to the alien presence. I had a discussion with Preston, and I said, is your model, and we'll get to the paranormal stuff because I'm quite interested in that too, but is your model for what's going on with UFOs the ETH? Is that you? And he said, that's, that's basically my model. I guess I consider other things, but there's so much in favor of that model. Uh, is that your feeling? Well, there is a lot of evidence in in favor of it. Um, I've also um, been a fan of the interdimensional um, model that these things, um, I shouldn't say things, these beings and the phenomena associated with them are not from off-world, uh, from some distant place, but from another dimension that's uh, stacked up against ours. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a mix. Uh, I don't think it's all uh, that it has to be one or the other, but I think yeah. it's a mix and that a lot of the things that we're calling extraterrestrial really are uh, more interdimensional. Uh-huh. I, what I told – and you know what? That is exactly what Preston said. What I told him is I am so agnostic it makes me sick, uh, basically. <laughs> I refuse to put a model on anything, which I guess kind of hamstrings you a little bit. But the only thing I believe in is my my stringent agnosticism about models. I can't be 100% convinced of aliens coming from other planets. I am convinced that there's something that's not human, that has a consciousness, that has an intelligence that interacts with us. Past that, I'm not sure because the ability of the human mind to make sense of things that don't make sense just for its own sanity... I think is is something that we don't really take into account. You can see something that's completely, that makes no sense whatsoever, and your brain goes, okay, we're going to make sense out of this, and that's what you remember. You know what? Can you see what I'm getting at? Right. Yeah. Does that, does that model seem like I'm grasping at straws, or that it's something, because I'm, I'm trying to pursue this. I've written a chapter about it for Reframing the Debate, and I think I'm going to write a book about it here. Um, based on that and things about information theory and how, you know, the uh, consciousness, consciousness created reality and physical laws and everything. Um, it, that, that, that interests me now. But do you, 
do you have any one uh, do you think that's the wrong path and two if you do agree with it does does that resonate with a lot of things that you've uh, done seen people you've talked to etc uh, well, I, I think that we're going to need to pay more attention to the role of consciousness uh, in terms of uh, the how and why of, of our experiences and um, what human consciousness is adding to the mix. Uh, and uh, it, it is the framework by which we have to make sense of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and... Um, uh, one of the things about uh, the experiencer spectrum is that uh, people are going to to put their um, experiences into a context that's meaningful to them, right. and they're going to use terminology that makes sense to them. Uh, and um, one person's angel is another person's ET. Right. Uh, you know that kind of thing. And so, where do you draw the line? Well, uh, some of the research that has been done by uh, the Edgar Mitchell Foundation for Research into Extraterrestrial and Extraordinary Encounters. I'm on the board of that organization. Uh, You know, uh, uh, Free did um, the world's largest global survey of experiencers and asking hundreds and hundreds of questions um, about um, the nuts and bolts of experiences, but also the soft side, too. Mm -hmm. And... um, Transformation of consciousness is what jumped out at me in in, uh, reading the results of the survey was transformation of consciousness is a key component to these experiences, Um, that people are transformed and changed in um, permanent ways. And some people that's going to be on the negative side, but what the the free data uh, has shown is that they're there's an untold audience of positive experiencers out there. Uh, and um, these experiences happen in what I would call matrix realities. Uh, you're, you're not in physical reality, earth reality. Uh, you're sort of in a limbo of somewhere else that's a matrix reality where these experiences take place. And that's even evidenced in uh, many of the accounts that we have in The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness, that Mm -hmm. uh, people say the environment shifts, uh, you know, they have the missing time, of course, uh, but feel uh, transported into some other kind of weird reality while they're looking at this craft confronted by an alien seeing something in the sky, uh, and the salient question is, why me? And mm, I'm, I'm sort yeah. of talking roundabout way and, uh, you know, in all this, but uh, people also feel that <clears throat> they were targeted in some way, that um, this intelligent force out there, presence, uh, whether uh, even if they can't identify it as a specific being, but something intelligent, far more intelligent than they are, is the feeling. Right. Um, has noticed them, targeted them, or responded to them in some way, and for many people, that's uh, a very frightening feeling. Right. Uh, and 
so what is it in our consciousness? What it is? What is it in the consciousness of an individual, for example, that targets them for an extraordinary experience when others around them are completely unaware? Yeah. I talked about this with Preston, and he described sort of the same thing. And I, I said, it sounds like some people's antennas are up higher. Yes. You know, <laughs> um, but through a combination of personality, genetics, um, upbringing, um, whatever. Like if you, uh, uh, Dean Radin described this to me, I said, why isn't everybody psychic? He said, well, everybody is. It's just there's only a few Michael Jordans. So it's. Exactly. Kind of the same thing with, uh, you know, you can apply this down the line, it sounds like, to a UFO witness or somebody even the, you know, even more of a witness, somebody that's had some kind of interaction. And maybe that maybe that's why I never see anything. I'm, I feel so deprived. Uh, <laughs> well, I... Uh, Mary. <laughs> yeah. you know, I, um, I haven't been taken aboard a craft, at least that I know of. Uh, I've had a lot of kinds of experiences, but um, I don't seem to have the UFO antenna myself. And I've used that term antenna uh, as well, or frequency. Mm -hmm. uh, there's an experiencer profile, and uh, it runs across the board, whether you're looking at the paranormal or cryptids or mystical angels, hmm. UFOs, that um, people who have certain kinds of experiences or frequent experiences it started in childhood. Right. They were just born that way. And they've got their antenna out there. And so wherever they go, uh, they're likely to encounter something in one of these matrix realities. Now, for some people, it's heavily skewed in a certain direction. Um, but I have found that in my interviewing of, of eyewitnesses that uh, even someone who's heavily skewed on the UFO end is still likely to have had some extraordinary paranormal experiences or mystical experiences as well. Uh -huh. Well, where does that leave, you know, um, somebody that's never had something happen and then something happens and then they have the, uh, and do you notice this a lot? They have other weird things happen, so, such as they have a UFO sighting, generally a close one, and immediately before or after now there's poltergeist activity in the house or a lot of synchronicities or just other things start happening as they enter this field of of strangeness does is that is that common or not it's very common and it is frequently overlooked as well especially in ufology because right. there you know such a focus on certain kinds of experiences um when i was doing um a lot of gin research um, and looking at shadow people, the presence of shadow people in the abduction phenomenon. Um, you read the abduction literature and it's loaded with peripheral phenomena. Right. Uh, and a lot of that, even if it gets mentioned, it's not really delved into mm -hmm. uh, as significant to the, um, the total picture. And, uh, yes, this uh, this happens across the board. Is that um, a an extraordinary experience of any kind will trigger a raft of subsidiary phenomena? Right. Or yeah, exactly. I was about to say stuff thing happens and then you see a UFO or something. However, I don't see this as much maybe with um, hauntings or ghosts. Is that, does that seem to make sense to you? Like I, I, somebody that witnesses a ghost isn't necessarily going to see a UFO. 
um, or aliens or have an abduction or anything like that. It seems it's that seems like a different profile. Or am I wrong? Uh, it is a different profile. Uh, there are some people, for example, who can um, go out, uh, maybe they're fairly new in the field of the paranormal, they go out on an investigation and they have uh, an unusual experience and they will feel like something follows them home or things start erupting in the home or they begin to notice things more, uh, some some part of their psychic sense gets blown open a, a bit wider, hmm. but it's not as pronounced as someone who's had a UFO encounter. Uh, that one seems to have, uh, and when I say UFO, I'm including aliens and craft uh, in that, um, you know, abductions, taking aboard a ship, uh, having some sort of face-to-face -face encounter. Um that one seems to blow the gaskets more than uh, <laughs> other kinds of experiences. Yeah, it seems to be more of a yeah. I was I was trying to think of a good uh, analogy. Blow the gaskets is a good one. It's uh, it's just uh, it just it just sprays the entire uh, it's the entire the entire uh, spectrum uh, starts showing up. I well, know. Go ahead. Oh. Uh, I was going to uh, point out that one of the things that uh, showed up in the, the free survey uh, was, um, and uh, off the top of my head, I've uh, forgotten the percentage of respondents, and, um, but uh, it, it was a significant percentage who said that as a result of their experiences, um, they felt that they were um, changed in uh, psycho spiritual ways and physical ways they felt like uh, their nervous system had been rewired they had um, awakened some sort of healing ability through their hands they were uh, more psychic uh, they were telepathic uh, they were more empathic uh, and very pronounced uh, changes in, in what really fit the whole syndrome of a kundalini awakening mm -hmm. And this just really leaped out at me uh, in, in looking at the data that what people were describing were the spontaneous uh, uh, kundalini um, kinds of, of phenomena. Uh, and, uh, you know, it made me wonder, that, is there something about this level of contact that um, parallels that? Uh, that rather than spending, you know, 20 years in meditation to open up your crown chakra, you have an encounter with an alien and boom, there you are. Yeah. Uh, maybe not to the same degree, but in, in a similar fashion. No. It sounds so like it, the difference between meditating and maybe like taking one huge dose of mushrooms and suddenly bang. Exactly. And uh, so, you know, is, is contact the new Kundalini? I mean, I <laughs> presentation on that is contact uh, you know is et contact the new kundalini uh -huh. uh, but um people uh feel also that they they are in contact with something extremely intelligent and even numinous yeah. and that this this is tied in and the experiencers tied this in themselves nobody put these words in their mouths um, that this is tied into a big picture involving the afterlife, uh, our connection to everything that is, um, and 
it uh, th- this level of transformation is much different than what we've seen on the negative end of things that has gotten so much attention for so long where people are abducted and put on tables and probed in very painful ways. Uh, and those experiences still go on. And, and I don't mean to minimize them, right. but for so many years, that was it. And, and that was the big focus in UFO experiencer uh, accounts. And now we're seeing a shift uh, where more people are coming out about these positive things. So who are these beings doing this? Are they uh, generating some sort of experience Uh, transformation within us to open up human consciousness in certain ways. Um, I think there's a multitude of agendas going on, both positive and negative. I I don't think that uh, you can be black and white about it. Yeah. When I hear these things, I... um, My basic instinct is that these things are more of a dance than a lecture. You know what I mean? Yes. That the person has is is quite participant, whether they know it know it or not, in whatever their experience is, by how they want to look at it, um, their background, their genetics, upbringing, all that literature that they've been, ex- been exposed to, who they talk to about it afterwards, all these things. But um, that interaction is a lot more of what the experience is than a subject object um, view of it. If if you can, if that makes any sense. Well, one of the things that uh, crops up over and over again in, in the uh, accounts, and it, it's a theme that runs throughout the Road to Strange book, um, is that people feel very insignificant uh, in the face of this contact, that they've run up against something that is so superior to us. Um, mm-hmm. And many people say that they feel very unimportant, uh, that they're like a, a lab rat or an animal or some lower life form to these beings. Right. Uh, and um, then in this this other end of the spectrum that uh, has come out, um, people say that they feel uh, on an equal, um, more of a parity basis hmm. uh, with, with these beings. And uh, so... The question I wonder is, uh, is is this like uh, a fairly new wrinkle, uh, um, a, a shift, or has it been there all along and um, it just hasn't been evident because people haven't been asking the right questions? It seems almost like um, a, a new wrinkle or a new chapter or something like that because it seems like to me that – from the beginning of the UFO, um, when people started paying attention to it and studying it, that there are fads and fashions and interests that go in waves. And this just seems like the newest wave to me. So that part of the the experience is becoming what? It's becoming prominent. It is unfolding out of something that was probably there all the time, but now people are looking at that part of it. Um, yes, and something like the survey that we did um, has has brought more of that to light, too. Yeah. Uh, and probably because of the questions that were asked. I mean, no one has ever asked experiencers so many questions. We right. had, you know, a multi-part uh, survey with uh, over 600 questions oh. uh, that, that were um, put together by 
academics uh, for the purpose of statistical analysis. And uh, the statistical analysis has been uh, ongoing and will probably uh, release something in the near future on, uh, you know, some overall statistics from the survey. We've had some preliminary results. Uh, so it, it is interesting. Now, another new thing that we've seen in uh, recent times is the hybrid uh, population coming out. Um, people who say that... Um, they have star DNA in them, and um, they have uh, family uh, among uh, star beings and, and ETs, and that they mm -hmm. have a specific purpose here on Earth. Um, that literature has uh, seen an increase in, in recent years, and um, uh, I, I find, you know, that's something I'm tracking as well. I find that very interesting. We have one uh, hybrid story in the book from Jacqueline Smith. And she is a psychic and an animal communicator and, and a healer. And she talks about uh, her experiences. Um, and um, others have been interviewed and have put their stories out there. Now, my thing about the DNA is, well, if you've got star DNA in you, then let's get some baselines going. Get these right. DNA samples tested. And uh, it's not enough to say, well, oh, well, it would just be unknown. Well, we've got to have some baselines here. So if you've got strands of DNA in you that are not human, then let's get some baseline stuff going. Um, and none of that's been done, to my knowledge. No, I don't know how you would figure out something like that. Uh, you know, is it in the quote-unquote junk DNA or what? I don't, know, I don't even know how you would go about testing for that. Uh, well, exactly. And... and uh, if, if there are, uh, let's say that um, there would be some unknown um, characteristics to somebody's DNA, well, if enough hybrids uh, were tested and they had the same unknowns, yeah. then could we start putting together some sort of picture? Mm -hmm. that, that might tell you something. I noticed that you've written lots of encyclopedias. Is that by design, or do you get um, do you do you, uh, do you get assigned to do it, or you just like doing it? Because encyclopedias <laughs> that's a big project. Uh, well, yes, quite. Um, I did um, seven encyclopedias, a dictionary, and an atlas. So God. nine books. And um, this was not something that I intended to do. Uh, and back back in the 80s, when I uh, started my full-time writing career, I had an editor who called me up one day and asked me if I would be interested in doing an encyclopedia. And uh, I said, well, I've never done an encyclopedia before. She said, oh, don't worry, you'll get the hang of it. <laughs> Great advice, yeah. It, she was probably right, or he. So, so um I started doing these encyclopedias, and I discovered that I was very good at it. Maybe it's the way organize, information organizes itself in my head. Mm -hmm. um, but um, I will say that it's, you know, they're complicated because a single-volume encyclopedia, um, you're going to leave out more than you can include. Mm -hmm. uh, and so what are the salient things? And what's going to constitute a mother entry versus a cross-referenced en uh, entry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because you don't, you don't want to send people jumping all over a book to try and collect 
pieces of information. Mm -hmm. And for reasons unbeknownst to me, just the same way that I sat down and dashed off the top of my head a perfect essay at the age of 15, um, I had a natural knack for doing encyclopedias, but I would call them real brain breakers. Yeah. And uh, so I don't do them anymore. Um, it, it was a combination of uh, a shift in the market because um, because of the Internet and so much available on the Internet, uh, the market for encyclopedias just really started to diminish. Mm-hmm. And um, I also wanted to move on after doing I, – I was doing other books as well as the encyclopedias, but they were taking up a lot of my time. And I was in a cycle of constant revision. Uh, oh, it's time to revise this one. It's time to revise that one. And uh, I really oh, wanted to do that forever. Do, uh, more more work where I could inject my uh, my own take on something, my own opinions. Um, and uh, so uh, they're still out there. All, all I've got ghosts and spirits, magic and alchemy, witches and witchcraft, uh, demons and demonology, vampires, saints, and dreams. Oh, and mystical and paranormal experience, and then I did an atlas of the mysterious in North America, and an and an encyclopedia of dreams, uh-huh. uh, di- dictionary of dreams, right. rather. You're interested in all these uh, different areas. What is the, what is the connecting link through them all? Consciousness or what? What do you think is a connecting link between UFOs, ghosts, um, the paranormal, um, the occult, angels, saints? You wrote an encyclopedia of saints. Is there a common thread through here that you see? And if it, if, is it just for you, or do you think it's a universal common thread? I, I believe there is a universal common thread. And uh, from, from the very beginning um, of my career in the paranormal, even before I uh, started working full-time in it, it was evident to me that all of these things were linked. Um, they all were related to each other in uh, in one way. And so um, that's one reason why I have written across such a broad spectrum of topics is that for me, I can't I can't separate. I can't isolate mm-hmm. things and I don't see them as isolated. Uh, and I think that uh, it all ties into consciousness and uh, how we perceive reality, and um, the expansion of consciousness. And um, for for years, I have talked about um, already being across the threshold to uh, to a new awareness uh, in which more people are. This is a collective thing, uh, and it's taking on sort of a. Uh, you know, mass forces in motion here. Uh, the more people who have experiences and talk about them, it generates an openness and an interest that enables more people to have experiences. Mm-hmm. And this changes our perception of reality. There's far more out there than uh, the limitations of uh, physical reality through the five senses. And we are in this process of expansion now. Uh, this is the new Earth. It's trans-reality Earth, and it involves contact with non-human uh, entities of all kinds. 
Yeah, that's something I brought up with Preston. I said, when you go out to talk to somebody, do you say alien? Because to my mind, if you start saying that, a whole host of uh, predetermined things start entering into the conversation. Um, so do you think it's... it's uh, we're we're trapped in our language, but is it? Do you think the and uh, how much does the investigator have to inject into it, and what words you know by by saying certain words? Do you think they they um, change the witness's perception and memory and all that? Because I think it really I think that really does happen. Uh, it does, and uh, for example, for for the book, uh, the Road to Strange. Um, we chose to emphasize the term aliens rather than ETs because they might not be ETs. Um, they might be, you know, these interdimensional beings. Um, alien at least expressed something that connotes different, you know, it's different uh, from us, foreign to us, unknown, strange. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so alien seemed to be um, the better term than uh, ETs. Of course, we, you know, people do speak in terms of ETs, and when we quote people, uh, we use that. But, um, yes, language carries uh, a connotation that then shapes interpretation, shapes analysis, and even shapes expectation. Uh, Years ago, I did... Um, an informal experiment with a psychologist friend of mine uh, about uh, how we explain experiences. And our premise was that if you if you took short experiences where people had encountered some unknown entity or being, but you didn't use any term like ET or angel or spirit or whatever, mm-hmm. um, and you asked people to interpret what uh identify what happened you know what kind of being was it the interpretations were all over the map right. and it, it, it was all based on context uh, as it has know, to be <laughs> as it has to be so we are limited by that and uh, I think it does shape our our experiences and how that's going to play out as this expansion takes place and and I think that it's going to uh, not a, not only is it going to, I think it is picking up momentum. Mm-hmm. These are forces in motion that have uh, collectivity added to them all the time. Um, it, it's it's going to be interesting to see how we start explaining these things to ourselves. Yeah, because I I think it will change. It is changing, and the less for me, the less I can assign a source or language to it it uh, opens up possibilities. And you've just said this now. I mean, if you, if you get witnesses not to latch on to certain terms, they start to open up a little bit. I noticed that you were... Oh, did you want to say something? I'm sorry. Uh, I, I think um, interviewers have to be very careful about, um, at least in the beginning, not trying to put words into the experiencer's um, mouth mm-hmm. uh, in terms of... Um, how they explain their experience, and uh, you know, it's leading the witness, and it's it's easy to do, uh, and um, there there should be some training programs for for researchers on interviewing people, on how to interview people, uh, you know, like a lawyer on trial without yeah. leading 
witness. Right. And it should be taught by people who have absolutely zero interest in the subject, I think. <laughs> Even better, yes. Yeah, or have no familiarity with what's going on. You did say people using the term alien rather than E.T., but don't you think culturally, for most people, that's the same thing? Yes. Uh, when you say the word alien, people automatically think E.T. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, you know, it, it, in the book, it was our effort to be as broad as possible, that whatever it is we're defining as aliens, we're not saying they're extraterrestrials from another planet. Yeah, I think you did say that at, at some point in the book. Um, and I, I, as I started reading it, I just thought, well, they're saying alien too much. And I thought, and, that, and I'm hamstrung by that, too. Well, then they mean no. people from other planets, you know, so. But, what term are you going to use, you know? Don't it's, know. I use non-human intelligence or something like that. <laughs> well, yeah, some clunky terms like um, yeah. in a lot of the free literature, we've used the term uh, NHIB, non-human intelligent being. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, how complicated are, are we going to get? Yet. I don't um, know. I, I don't <laughs> think it's I, I'm not doing it to be any kind of political correctness, but to try and pry semantically locked language away from trying to ask people about these experiences, looking at them and, and, and studying them, because once you start steering yourself in a certain direction, like somebody will ask a question and the answer is encoded in the question. So if your question is really specific, you're probably only going to find an answer for that question and not, con- you know, every everything outside of that spectrum, the rest of the spectrum will be ignored. That's what kind of worries me. Uh, well, here again, we get down to, um, you know, interviewing, mm-hmm. uh, interviewing techniques and... Uh, there are a lot of researchers out there that they're looking for certain things. They have biases or expectations or they're tracking certain things. So they're looking for certain things, and that's what they're going to try and winnow out yeah. uh, rather than um, collecting a lot of information and you know, sort, sorting through it in, in some way. Um, yeah, it's difficult. I mean, I can, I can be, I can be as bitchy as I want, but, uh, actually doing it is very difficult. So yeah, I, I agree. And, uh, it's very time consuming, um, wading through a lot of information to, um, to look for the patterns and the salient points and, uh, things that jump out. Uh, when I was uh, when I started my shadow people research, um, which I launched that back in 2004, uh, you know, trying to uh, ascertain well, what are shadow people? Are they ghosts? Are they aliens? Thought forms? Demons? What are they? Because there were definite patterns to experiences that people were having with shadow people, mm-hmm. and so I I collected a huge number of accounts. And in going over them, uh, it suddenly started jumping out at me that um, too many people volunteered that they were also UFO experiencers, ET experiencers, or abductees. Mm. And this was a crossover that was very unusual for the paranormal. Yeah. And um, if I hadn't just collected general experiences by the hundreds and just read through them all, um, I wouldn't have found that thread. But I found that thread, 
and I started I started focusing on it and asking more specific questions of experiencers. And that's what led me back into the abduction literature, which is loaded with shadow people experiences. Um, but no one ever pulled it out of the abduction literature. Uh, it just got buried and dismissed. Uh, so why are shadow people involved in abductions? You know, nobody was asking those questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, and unless you have a huge amount of, of data to sift through, um, you don't find the, you know, these things don't show up uh, if you're only looking for certain things. Yeah, or they'll be they'll be present in the literature as, as uh, <laughs> strangely enough, as shadows. They they kind of sit there, but nobody ever notices till that filter comes in. You'd say, oh, well, this looks like what I've been researching in this other area. Okay, I'm stupid. What is your dictionary definition of a shadow person, and how does that? And and then we'll go into how does that manifest. Because I don't know a whole hell of a lot about this area. I hear it a lot. I haven't read your book on it. And people have been talking about it for years. Probably, you were probably one of the first people that brought it up. But what is it? What is this phenomenon? Well, the classic shadow person is uh, a solid black humanoid shape um, that looks like a tall man, six to seven feet tall, wearing a coat or a cape and often a hat. And they're solid black. They're usually nighttime bedroom visitors, uh, although people see them other times as well. And they seem to be very hostile, malevolent, and people also use the term evil. Mm-hmm. And um, the, it's, it's a terrifying bedroom experience where people, uh, they have the sleep paralysis uh, they feel threatened by the entity. Sometimes uh, the shadow person will actually attack them. Uh, they feel suffocated and choked, like the old hag syndrome. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it's it's al- almost like the abduction, where it happens beyond the control of the individual. Um, they don't have. Um, it's difficult to stop. Uh, they feel like this entity is intelligent, it's going to get them, it knows where they are all the time. Uh, and some people have frequent experiences uh, in this way, and, and some people uh, just have them every now and then. Um, there are emotional factors surrounding some of the experiences. Uh, people in emotional chaos um, can be vulnerable to a, a slate of these kinds of experiences, like the entity is drawn to negative uh, emotions. There's a subset of them that haunt uh, what I call polluted places, like um, abandoned prisons, hospitals, asylums, places where horrible things have happened. Mm-hmm. And they are attached to the land, uh, but it's the same negative energy connotation. Uh, so... Um, I started getting, um, my research got uh, stimulated by um, a lot of emails that came in uh, with people relating these accounts that were markedly similar and saying, what is this and why is this happening and what do I do to get rid of this thing? Uh, And so I thought, well, you know, I'll interview, um, you know, few, you know, hundred or so people write up some articles, get to the bottom of it. And it wound up being a 
an ongoing project that went on for years. Uh-huh. Uh, I have related shadow people to jinn. And I think that that is a very good explanation for them because it fits the sort of the gin modus operandi of, uh, you know, harassing and pestering people. Yeah. Uh, but um, for them to show up in the abductions, uh, they don't uh, they don't come in the actual abduction, but they precede the abduction and they follow the abduction. Hmm. And whether or not they are interlopers that are taking advantage of an energetic uh, situation that's in their favor or they're in some sort of collusion with other entities, it's hard to say. Um, But um, uh, some people think that they're demons, and I would say that their behavior is very demonic in that it's malevolent and hostile. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes they're rather benign, like when you find them in haunted places, uh, they sometimes they they don't really act out against people. They're just there and kind of creepy. So um, hmm. you can't pigeonhole them into into one definition. But um, arguments have been made that this is like Slender Man, something very recent, or the Black Eyed Kids. You know, nobody heard of these things until just a few decades yeah, ago. Yeah, that was going to be my next question: historical um, antecedents. Uh, Well, I believe that there is, because uh, you find descriptions of these things in Native American lore, uh, and uh, uh, Native American lore, and I also believe that earlier accounts that described uh, black monks, black nuns, black ghosts, uh, even uh, the man in in black who was thought to be the devil, uh, those could all be early descriptions going back to the 1200s at least um, of uh, what we now call shadow people right that brings me well doesn't totally bring me to but um, malevolent things Uh, you have a book on um, scary Ouija Ouija board stories yeah two two books in fact oh Uh, two okay well, Ouija Gone Wild and the Zozo Phenomenon. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, which zeroes in on the Zozo entity. And my feeling about the Ouija board is it's a neutral device. And um, I think that a lot of people can use a Ouija board, never have a bad experience. And it certainly wasn't intended that way. It wasn't originally marketed that way. Um, it was a family thing of, of entertainment. And Hollywood demonized it. Mm-hmm. And then you've got um, uninformed demonologists out there uh, <laughs> saying, uh, oh, it's a welcome mat to Satan. You should never use it. You're going to get possessed. And unfortunately, the Ouija board has been demonized by these outside forces. And I don't think it will ever be rehabilitated, sadly, which then predisposes people right. to have negative experiences using this device. I, I will tell you my short uh, Ouija story. This was from before I even started writing about UFOs uh, as a as an avocation, I guess. I was in a room with, with two other friends. We were playing with a Ouija board, and we got, and we got messages, and we got information. Um, I tried to check out the information. This was pre-internet. Um, 
and none of it checked out. The the person that said they came to us, they, they that person never lived. They gave us a phone number to call. The person said, I don't know what the hell you're talking about. I don't know who you are. A lot of spurious, terrible information. Uh, so we gave up on it. Uh, that, that's as far as it went. We're just kind of like, well, this thing's either messing with us or one of us is controlling the board, not telling the others or something. Uh, six months later, maybe not even that long, I was at a party and I, I said, I described what was going on uh, to somebody there. And they said, oh, you got so-and-so too. And they gave us the exact same name. Uh, and oh. I think it was Queenie. <laughs> and they said, and I said, what do you mean? They said, that's the exact same thing that we got. And I had never met this person before. So does that sound does that sound like a typical uh, Ouija board story? <laughs> yes, it does. And uh, in spite of the fact that I feel the board is neutral, yeah, um, people do have freaky experiences with it, and I think that um, it, it didn't scare the, me. It amazed me, actually. Yeah, a lot of these experiences—they're not scary. They're just sort of weird. Yeah. Um, and I think that as a spirit communication device, it may access the lower astral plane where you've got prankster, trickster, uh, hostile entities uh, that seem to be able to make use of this more than other kinds of, of spirit communication devices. Mm-hmm. And um, then, of course, since the demonization of the board... Uh, we have people thrill-seeking who are hoping that something weird or freaky is is going to come through. But, you know, that being said, when when Rick Fisher and I did Ouija Gone Wild, Mm -hmm. um, we had a hundred-year-plus history of Ouija board stories that we had culled from newspaper clippings. And... um, Really weird, freaky stuff all along the line. The 1920s had so many freaky Ouija stories that uh, <laughs> was literally called Ouija mania. And uh, the Ouija board was even banned in some communities because people were having these bizarre experiences. And they were um, doing things like following instructions from the spirits to get divorced or to try and murder people or, you know, the husband's having an affair when he wasn't, uh, swindling, financial schemes. Geez, sounds like the Internet. (laughs) (laughs) It's all on the Ouija board. Yeah. It does have a very checkered history. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, it it definitely does. Yeah. about oh, 15 years ago, I was trying to find antique Ouija boards like on eBay, and they were uh, fairly reasonable. Now they're hundreds of dollars for those old wooden ones. Oh, I know. The the prices have gone out of sight. Uh, I only have like, uh, oh, maybe a, a 20 or so boards and, and uh, nothing only. Uh, Nothing um, really old, 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 but um, Rick Fisher, my my co-author on Ouija Gone Wild, was a collector uh, for a good number of years, and he would pick up uh, vintage boards for like $10 uh, on eBay, and uh, you'd be looking at probably $1,000 for some of those boards now. Yeah, and they just I guess they're the old William Fold. Um, uh, they just said talking board on them because they weren't called Ouija yet. 
And there were, yes, uh, there were a number of designs uh, in the early days. And then there there were a number of competitors, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and William Fold, who took over the, the original company, uh, was a toy manufacturer that started the Ouija board. Uh, and 1890s, I think? Uh, eight, it, the first board came out, I think, in uh, 1892, somewhere around there. Yeah, right in the middle of the spiritualist uh, craze. Well, that's where they got their inspiration from, uh-huh. uh, from Lanchette and from uh, spirit circles. And right. they just uh, came up with a design that was very compact and could be marketed very easily. Mm. Well, William Fold, uh, when he got control of the company, and he started in the company as a painter, Uh, And he worked his way up the ranks and was able to buy out people. He was very shrewd. Yes. And he wanted a mystique to the the Ouija board. He was very good at marketing. And uh, he went after his competitors, Hammer and Tong, and (laughs) basically put them all out of business. Yeah. Sounds like the the, the, uh, the, uh, old... uh uh, Robber Baron's story, except it was with Ouija boards. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, but he had a tragic death himself, uh, which some people think that, you know, is, there's some sort of curse to the, the Ouija. And um, he had a big manufacturing plant in Baltimore mm, and ins- yeah. insisted on doing a lot of the maintenance himself. And he, he went up on the roof to do some sort of repair and fell. Mm. Um, grabbed a windowsill on the way down, which broke his fall a bit, but um, he suffered injuries that he eventually died from within a few days. Huh. Yes, I have heard that about him and how, you know, there's all this speculation that he, he called up forces and they got back at him or something like You'd think they would help him out because he, he, had, he had made them so popular. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Who knows? Um Another one of your books that fascinated me was scrying techniques because I've tried that, and I guess you have. What what is your what? First, tell people what scrying is, and two, what have you done with it? And three, how can it be useful? A scrying is a Middle English term, uh, about five or six hundred years old, which means to discern dimly, and uh, it's uh, another term for it is gazing, like mirror gazing. Mm-hmm. And um, so I love that term, scrying. It sounds very mysterious. Yeah, it's better and, than crystal ball gazing or whatever, which is kind of the same thing. Right. So uh, for years, uh, I've been a proponent of black mirror scrying. Um, and that's um, a mirror that is uh, coated black on the, the reverse side instead of silvered. So it's, it's like a blank slate. Um, black shiny surfaces have been in use for thousands and thousands of years as um, a an interface to the spirit world. Shiny surfaces in general. Ancient people discovered that if you gazed into a shiny surface, uh, it opened up the psychic faculty. And uh, black shiny surfaces uh, were actually always preferred to uh, to something else like water in a black bowl or a black stone or um, that was my problem. I had water in a black bowl when I tried it. Um, Nostradamus um, he used something in a bowl. Uh, there are different stories. Uh, one is that he used black ink in a bowl. The other is that it was a black bowl with water in it. Uh, and 
years ago, I started experimenting with the black mirror mm-hmm. and found it to be uh, a very effective tool for a, a number of things. One, it does open up the psychic faculty, gazing into it. Uh, it is a very um, a useful tool for contacting the dead, and that's what most people use it for. Uh, Raymond Moody uh, sort of rejuvenated that aspect of the black shiny surface with his term psychomantium. Oh, yeah. Uh, which he popularized in the 90s. And I did, um, I took some training from Raymond Moody. Uh, it will sharpen up the psychic faculty. You can use it to look at past lives, uh, astral travel, uh, go to the Akashic records, uh, you know, all kinds of things. But primarily, uh, I have used it in my workshops, and that's what the book is about, The Art of Black Mirror Scrying, for contacting the dead. Mm-hmm. And uh, Raymond Moody also uh, has been a proponent of that, that uh, he discovered uh, in his work that uh, it enabled people to have um, closure or some sort of comfort that had eluded them or that they hadn't been able to achieve in counseling or therapy. Um, doesn't replace grief counseling by any means, but it's kind of an adjunct to it. So it's a way to have, um, for many people, it's closure, or they get some sort of comfort, some sort of indication or reassurance that there is survival after death. And uh, so my husband and I make black mirrors, and we conduct black mirror workshops uh, all over the country. You should be able to get that, what's that called, that ultra black or vanta black, but I guess it's only licensed to that one person. I wonder what that, I wonder what effect that would have. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, uh, no, I don't. There is a black that is, um, I think the reflectivity index is the lowest of any black uh, pigment or paint ever. Um, I think it was invented by, was it a British company or a French company? But an artist gave them a bunch of money so that he would be the only one that could use it. Oh. And I think there was a, at the Olympics recent, recently, there was a building covered by this artist covered in that black color. And it basically looks like a hole in reality. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> when you stare well, at it. <laughs> um, the, the thing about scrying is you actually want a reflective surface. So something that was like a black hole might not be um, as um, as productive. Uh, there, or you could co- coat the ba- back of the glass with it, so at least it would have a sheen on it. Right. The glass itself would, would provide then some reflective uh, sort of bounce to it. But um, when, you, when you gaze into it and you use kind of a soft gaze... Uh, yeah, it, a defocused. Right. It fatigues the physical eyes, and that's what enables some of the psychic stuff then to start moving to the forefront. Um, I have uh, used black mirrors in seances as well, spirit circles. Um, And in fact, uh, the last one I did, which was in November, and it was uh, at uh, a haunted Omni resort in Bedford Springs, Pennsylvania, uh, we had uh, a spirit circle, and uh, we put the black mirror in the center of the circle, and I asked everybody to focus into the mirror. And we had um, quite a few spirit communications that came through, but uh, there was phenomena that came out of the mirror, and I've, I've uh, um, 
had testimonies from other people um, in a similar fashion. There was um, a mist that came out of the mirror. Uh, there were lights that showed up in the mirror. Um, these sorts of things are usually seen clairvoyantly. Um, in our workshops, we've had um, apparitions show up in the room. We've had sound. We've had Gregorian chanting. We've had Native American drumming. Uh, we've had whistling footsteps. Um, there is something about this process of, of going uh, into the mirror that generates a lot of um, activity. Now, we don't have that in every workshop, but um, people usually experience something in the mirror, even if it's nothing more than a cloudiness and kind of moving lights. That's all I ever had. I had this, like, moving mist and I couldn't get past that, it seems like, and then I gave up on it. Maybe I should take it up again with all with my accumulated knowledge and, and uh, whatever else. But yeah, just, just it looked like um, swirling clouds or, or mist or even something in the water that was that, that wasn't that wasn't in the water when I you know physically in the water, just swirling around. That's all I ever saw. And I couldn't really get past that. But to you know I, do you, you people, probably, do, do people, is this a, it sounds like it's not even only an individual thing. It sounds like there's other people there. It start, starts becoming a, a shared experience. In a, in a group event, yes. Um, when we've had a breakout of, of environmental phenomena, um, there are multiple people who experience it. And usually not everybody, however. And I think we're getting back to this antenna thing. Yeah. Uh, that uh, some people are not going to pick up on things and other people are. But at the end of a, a workshop, I ask people if they want to share. And um, if somebody mentions something uh, and it's timid at first, like, oh, I don't want to sound like a nut, but, uh, you know, I heard footsteps walking around. Um, someone else will pipe up and say, I heard that, too. Uh, people yeah. have touched um uh, they'll they'll feel like somebody is standing behind them or touching them on the head or the shoulders. Um, people can have very profound emotional experiences too, where they feel that they they've had a, a genuine contact with someone who's passed over, and it's been very meaningful to them. Yeah, and that's the the real meat of the whole experience. Yeah, exactly. It's um, it's whatever is it i'm starting to think and i'm think i think you probably agree with this is a lot of a lot of things we consider paranormal are very individualized for the witness yes uh, they are but when people share them they find out that others might have shared in that experience as well mhm mm so it's it's both and oh okay uh, uh, for for some people in the workshop, everything is in it's them in the mirror. Every they're focused on whatever is going on in the mirror. They're not aware of of other things going on in the room. Um, the most common it, and and some people have profound experiences, and other people don't. And I think that people who are in the habit of um, meditating or they've done a lot of psychic work, um, they're sort of on a fast track. But yeah. I've had total beginners who've never done anything uh, have profound experiences. And other people have experiences like you where it seems like the door opens a bit and they see mists and moving lights and then nothing else unfolds. 
Well, what I tell people is that it's not always just in the mirror because it activates your psychic faculty and you're, you're going to have inner experiences as well. So pay attention to what's going on in the mind's eye and what you're picking up in terms of, of overall feeling and right. uh, maybe thoughts that fall into your head. So don't expect everything to be just in the mirror. And for many people, it's kind of moving back and forth between the mind's eye or the mirror or the mirror triggers something that then becomes an entirely um, interiorized experience. I see. Yeah, it throws a switch or something. Right. Of all these things you've done, everything you've uh, witnessed, experienced, or researched, um, what kind of sticks out at you as, one, a very singular uh, experience, and two, um, you know, why do you can continue to do it? What, what is what is the meaning of this of this journey for you? Uh, my work is my life journey. I, I would say it's my soul path as well. Uh, so one feeds the other. My work feeds the soul path, and my soul path feeds the work. And um, I have believed throughout my life that this is what I came into this life to do: uh, to use uh, this this ability and gift for writing to uh, to probe uh, these these great mysteries i could have done many other kinds of writing i was a journalist for a good number of years i did crime i did state politics mm-hmm. um, i had invitations to do tell-all books true crime books stuff that could have made me tons and tons of money um, but the uh, i i didn't want to do that um, i've made um, I've made a good living for myself. I feel very blessed that I've been able to be self-employed since 1983, yeah. uh, pursuing these topics. But it's a truth thing for me. It's a pursuit of truth. And it's my own truth as well as my contribution to truth. Hmm. Uh, and so um, uh, the paranormal has been interesting to me, and it's still a major part of my my field work, but I feel that um, I guess I would say where I where I feel personally the real action is is more in the afterlife studies, uh, in the expansion of consciousness, in contact, contact of all kinds. Um, that's where I feel uh, the um, the important work for me is. Uh, at this stage in my career. Right. Anything that's ever happened to you that just kind of really made you sit up and take notice that you that kind of changed the way you looked at things, changed your your uh, your perspective. I mean, a, a, a concrete um, experience that uh, either you set out to have or that inadvertently was a result of your research. Am I make, does that make sense? <laughs> yes, I've, I've certainly had a lot of inadvertent experiences. <laughs> Uh, on on both the positive and negative side, I mean, you know, going into the persistent negative hauntings and the shadow people, well, you run up against some pretty creepy stuff out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, I've certainly had some jarring experiences in, in that uh, way. But um, the the life changers for me have been on the spiritual and mystical end. And uh, I've had some mystical experiences that uh, I feel uh, equal you know, some of the things that I encountered in the literature of saints, where you feel swept up into something that is so transcendent, so beyond the self, and yet you're a part of that. 
and you understand it on this holistic level that you can't even put into words. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've I've had um, uh, one or two experiences like that. You, they never repeat, but they do change your life. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, you, and, and putting it into words would probably ruin it in some way. And I guess we get back to that individual uh, individual message and what you do with it. The new book is The Road to Strange, UFOs, Aliens, and High Strangeness by Michael Bryan. Is that how you pronounce it? yes. Yeah. And my guest, Rosemary Ellen Guiley, so nice to talk to you. I can't believe how lucky I am to to have had you on the show. And thank you for um, being patient with my um, uh, selfish questions. (laughs) Oh, great. It's been a great conversation. I can't thank you enough. It's, uh, It's always a pleasure to have a real conversation Rather than, uh, you know, just be asked a lot of, uh, you know, bangy bang questions. You know, this, it's been a real dialogue here. And uh, I'm an admirer of, of you and your work as well. So I, I can't thank you enough. All right. Well, thanks so much, Rose- Rosemary. I did not tell you. I should tell people this before I start the show. I let the guest pick the outro music every time. Do you have a, a, a piece of music that you want to play out the show with? Oh gosh! Well, you're you're hitting cold here. <laughs> yeah, I do that with everybody. I should tell people beforehand because they're like, Ugh. but this is what editing's for, and you know we've got a few listeners now, but they don't care. It's my audience. <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you there there are a couple of pieces that come to mind, and um, one is um, uh, "Dreams" by the Cranberries. Uh, the lead singer just recently died an oh, untimely right. death, but yeah. it's a it's a very moody song about um, being in a dream reality. All right, thanks, Rosemary. Here's uh, Cranberries with Dreams. Thanks again. Okay, thanks, Greg. Good night. <laughs> 